Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In 2020, events have again shone a light on inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School at the ANU, and I also head the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre and the Children's Policy Centre. And I'm here today with Anna Greta Hunter. Hi, Anna Greta. Hi, Sharon. It's great to be with you again. We're back. We are. Uh, and I'm Anagreta Hunt. I'm a cardiologist and physician. I'm part of the ANU Medical School and I'm the Human Futures Fellow at ANU this year. Policy Forum Pod is produced by Policy Forum Net here at the Crawford School. The Crawford School is the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate public policy school. We have an amazing array of degree programs and short courses. And starting from next year, we have an exciting model of both online and face-to-face teaching. So do check out what we have on offer at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. We would love to see you here and be able to continue some of these incredible conversations that we're having around a well-being economy and reimagining the future with you. Anna Greta, what have we got in store today? Well, uh, we're going to continue on our exploration and our not-so-hostile takeover of the Policy Forum pod. This mini-series has been focusing on the wellbeing economy that we dreamt up as a result of discussions after the federal budget this year, and particularly in light of what we saw as a real missed opportunity for economic change to combat the sorts of serious challenges that are around us. We were particularly struck, I think, by how we value or probably fail fail to value the role of caring within our community, caring for the elderly, caring for children and friends and family. So over the past four episodes, we've had a fantastic journey. We've started by speaking to John Quiggan about economics, about how it works and how it might change. We solved climate change, or at least we had a fantastic conversation along those lines with Tim Hollow and Mark Howden. We spoke to Guy Standing about the universal basic income and how that change uh, in public policy would help to slay what he sees are the eight giants that are confronting humanity. 
And of course, we spoke to David Hume about poverty and how economic change would address what remains to be a significant human and environmental challenge around the world. So today's episode, we'd like to talk about health, well-being and economics and how those things might be related. I thought I might start with a little bit of framing for today's discussion. A study from the medical journal The Lancet that was published a few years ago estimated the carbon footprint from the Australian healthcare industry at around 7% of the total Australian carbon footprint. This is a number that's roughly equivalent with international comparisons in other countries. More than 10% of working Australians are employed in the healthcare or caring work. However, most of the carbon cost from healthcare actually comes from the use of pharmaceuticals and from hospitalisation, rather than from the caring work that goes with the health industry as an employment model. There are some great projects that are underway, particularly through the Global Green and Healthy Hospitals Network, which are aiming to decrease the carbon footprint uh, associated with the healthcare industry, particularly by encouraging the transition to renewable energy and looking at issues around waste. However, this energy transition and waste reduction is only one part of this puzzle. In the practice of medicine, we know that there are some low-value healthcare in practice. There are things that happen in hospitals and in healthcare that don't make a big difference to either quality or quantity of life. And more importantly, we know that many of the diseases and conditions that we treat with pharmaceuticals and hospital admissions and procedures are preventable if we can better address the social determinants of health. Improving education, relationships, providing adequate economic and social support can make a profound impact on health and well-being. Add to this improved nutrition and physical activity and we probably have a much healthier society. But the impacts of this maybe utopian type transition uh, on out the industry of healthcare, on the economics of the healthcare system, would be quite profound. Our healthcare business runs on activity and often on the more carbon intensive aspects of medical practice, these are the most financially rewarding. So if our population becomes healthier, the business of medicine, the money side, might need to change. It's an interesting tension for the health industry to address, and I hope that it frames our conversation today in a, in a way, as I suspect we'll touch on a number of those issues through our discussion. So today's main questions are, how does economics affect our health? How does changing economic models improve health and well-being? So, Anna Greta, I'm really looking forward to this conversation and um, I'm delighted to say that as we discussed on last week's episode, we wanted to invite the amazing Sharon Friel to join us for this conversation and we have enticed her to be here with us. So, we are delighted to have Sharon with us and Anna Greta, you also have some level of expertise in issues around the social determinants of health. So, I'm really excited about hearing both of your views on this. As many of our listeners will know, Sharon Friel is Professor of Health Equity at the ANU School of Regulation and Global Governance. Sharon is also Director of the Menzies Centre for Health Governance, and she's an extraordinary thinker who over the past several years has changed how many of us here think about health, economics and climate change in particular. Sharon is a global leader in health equity, having led the WHO Commission on the Social Determinants of Health between 2005 and 2008. She is a Fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences Australia and co-director of the NHMRC Centre for Research Excellence in Social Determinants of Health Equity. 
In 2014, her peers internationally voted her as one of the world's most influential female leaders in global health. That is quite a CV to bring to the discussion. Sharon, it's great to have you here. Hello. Hello. Delighted to be with you both. Yeah, it's great to have you here. So we are going to talk um, about um, the social determinants of health and really focus um, on some of these issues about how we can improve health and well-being. But before we go to that conversation, I really want to just note, Sharon, that you are also host of Dinner Ladies Save the World, a podcast series um, produced here at the ANU. And I believe you're going to be hosting a special Christmas episode this year. Can you tell us a bit more about what you have in store for us through that podcast? Well, I can't do the full reveal because, of course, you have to listen in. Um, but actually, the title of the, the podcast of the Christmas special is Utopia. So really, it's very much to what you're speaking about uh, mm. over this mini-series. Um, and really, you know, the, the Dinner Ladies Save the World podcast came about you know, a number of female academics from across the ANU getting together over dinner, ruining the state of the world, the state of the university in particular, and uh, really just trying to say how can we support each other in that. And of course, for us right now in this uh, state of the world uh, and the reimagining that you've been doing through this uh, mini-series, uh, really getting together to say, okay, what can the future look like and how do we get there? I think 2020 has been something of a dystopian nightmare for so many people. And at this moment in time, thinking about what utopia might look like and how we can create it, I think is actually fundamentally important for all of us. So looking forward to that podcast and to this discussion today. Absolutely. No, utopia, economics, uh, these are part of the themes of 2020, along with how we can, how we can undertake radical transformation. So economics, healthcare, uh, and how to solve difficult problems. Sharon, perhaps a first question uh, is an, a, a more straightforward one. How do economics influence our health and wellbeing? Well, I mean, if you think of you know, the, the dominance of economics and how economics shapes the paradigm of the decisions that happen in every sector within society, and if we appreciate that every sector within society has some sort of implication for our health, then the very fact that economics is, is shaping every sector within society. And I, mean, I think we have to ask the question of economics as you know, what is the purpose? And I would argue that it's a means to an end. It's not the end. And I think what we've seen uh, within societies writ large is the strive to think about the economy, economics and the economy as if that's the goal mm. that we're seeking. But the fact that the economy, economics, income, inequality uh, matters for people's everyday material resource. It shapes the ability for us to afford houses. It shapes the cost of houses. It shapes the the way in which we design our cities. It shapes the rural opportunities. It shapes the differential access to education. Uh, and all of these things fundamentally affect our physical and mental well-being. Then 
we cannot separate uh, the economy from human health. And again, I would ask, if we ask the question of economics and the economy of for what purpose, it has to be as a means to an end. And so I think what we're talking about today is what is that end that we're trying to reach or, mm. or, or strive towards? Uh, and I would say that would have to be a much better um, distribution of health, much better health, much better distribution of health and much better social and environmental outcomes. That's what the economy should be working towards. So what do you think the economy is doing at the moment? If, if we've got a model of alternative, what sort of drivers do you think? Is it all about power? Well, I think underpinning uh, the economy is all about power. So if we think of um, the unfettered market, uh, uh, which is all about striving towards profit at any cost. And so the dominant economic paradigm uh, is what underpins that market uh, approach towards the uh, unfettered uh, market towards profits. I have no issue with profit. I have an issue as to how we get to those profits. And because the the negative externalities that are arising from that economic model, we see, ex- and, and so this might lead into mm. our consumptogenic uh, systems. Uh, so if we agree that a consumptogenic system or the global consumptogenic system is absolutely based upon and driven by uh, an unfettered market, which is all about increasing profits, and that is absolutely dependent on fossil fuels to drive that. You know, it's about production and consumption if we want to get all Marxian. Um, but really what that system is, it's public policies, its business practices, its social norms, its institutional norms, its ways of governing that think that that economic model is what we should have and what we should strive towards. And the negative externalities from that is much poorer uh, health outcomes because we drive excess consumption, we drive societies to think we need and want and we want more and we're not as good as our neighbours because we haven't got all of that and that's not good for our mental health either. Um, But it also drives inequality, going back to the income inequality, which loops around to affect our health as well. And, of course, it absolutely drives um, environmental degradation and climate change. So what sort of economy for? Surely it can't be for that. Mm, absolutely. You did publish a book two years ago, um, Climate Change and the, hum- the People's hum- Health, the people's health um, a book that I've recommended to many people and, in fact, I've given away quite a few copies to various uh, people so that they can uh, take on board the message. Could you explain to us what the consumptogenic system model is and, and how it might frame uh, my understanding of health and wellbeing more completely? Yeah, so that consumptogenic system. If, so if you think, you know, if you think of our everyday, we're sitting in this room, in this boiling hot room, um, which is of driven by fossil fuels, you know, to keep us in this room. We've all got our um, paraphernalia in front of us that's all been uh, produced, manufactured based on a, a fossil fuel uh, model, um, which has been. Um, facilitated through trade and investment policy uh, that moves these things around the world and encourages more and more production and consumption of these sorts of things. 
I'm looking around Martin's office and we I don't see junk food. I was expecting a little plate of cookies, but I don't see any junk food. Uh, but uh, junk food, uh, for example, would be one of those uh, um, products that comes out of a system that you know, greater uh, production of high value products uh, that make a lot of money and are traded and invested around the world, which are just so bad for us from a health perspective, you know, excess consumption of that. But of course, the marketing and the price signals drive us to want to consume all of that. So a consumptogenic system, it's not just about food, but it's about all facets of policy that encourages more production and consumption of products and services that have these health risks. Of course, there's great things in there, but there's excess health risks. You know, that's why we see the levels of poor health that we see around the world uh, that are sort of um, valued unequally around the world and so leads to this inequality. And, you know, as I've been saying before about the absolute dominance of uh, reliance on fossil fuel. And so there's great opportunity to recalibrate that consumptogenic system. If we think about the governance, if we think about the public policies and the regulatory frameworks, if we think about in industry practices and the incentives for industry, and if we think about societal norms, it's the recalibration of all of those things that would help us get towards a valuing of products and services and ways of being that is better for health, better from a social equity perspective and better from an environmental perspective. Sorry, mm. that was a bit of a long ramble about the consumptogenic system. but No, I mean, it reminds me of the be the beginning that we had of our conversation around climate change where we talked about um, turning the tap off and thinking about the implications if we stopped burning fossil fuel, all of it today. Um, and in my mind, one of the things that pops up quite quickly is trade and global trade and the way in which we, we move stuff around and the way that then, that then follows on to impact on us. Yeah. If we, we thought, I guess, about the stuff that we buy and the stuff that we trade and the stuff that we need through the health prism, it might be uh, – well, I think that's really part of what your thesis gives us is both the environmental footprint as well as the health footprint of the sort of economic activity that drives much of uh, human activity in the world. Sharon, I'm, I'm interested in, in starting to think about where we begin to address some of the problems that underpin that consumptogenic model. And I guess the, the first thing I'm really interested in hearing your views on are how we think about this in terms of global inequality and what is sometimes called development, not necessarily positive development, but in a society like Australia, there is clearly an enormous amount of consumption and a lot of stuff that's consumed that is not in people's own interests and not necessarily leading to better health or wellbeing outcomes. In many countries of the global south, you know, the, the model of development has been around trying to pursue that same model. And one of the challenges that's often raised is how do those countries that have reached this level of consumption now turn around and say, we need to put a halt to this, when many people in the global south feel as though they're just on the brink of that kind of um, 
acquisition, if you like, of consumer goods. And so there's often, you know, this concern or this this issue raised um, about the the issues of, of global inequality and where we need to start in terms of pulling back from this consumptogenic model. What's your thinking around how we think about these issues in the global context? Is it wealthy countries that need to, to take a lead here um, and where regulation needs to start or, or do we need to think about this globally, including in emerging middle-income countries and low-income countries that are perhaps striving <laughs> for models of higher consumption? Yeah, so I don't think it's an either or. I mean, the, so the level of injustice uh, in this is phenomenal, of course, because it's been a tiny fraction of countries, institutions and populations that have contributed uh, to the, well, certainly to the emissions, but are being um, key players. Uh, Anna Greta asked about, is this about power? Well, if you think about the inequities in global power, then absolutely. Um, so, I, so it's not an either or. So, if we think about those uh, at that global level, I mean, the way we might think about it is a contraction and a convergence. And so, a major contraction among those high income countries, those high polluting countries, those countries that uh, you know, the market, the price, the all of the the signals that encourage uh, consumption needs to stop, uh, or it certainly needs to re- contract. Which allows uh, a level, a, well, a level of uh, increase among those uh, countries that you're speaking about, uh, Sharon. Um, but at the same time, within those countries, not to follow the same trajectory of the high-income countries, but to really, I mean, if 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 development and development aid really wanted to do this well, you know, actually supporting countries. I mean, just think about all of the industries, the different. Um, products and services that are produced in those uh, low middle income countries as forms of development, they can be green. Uh, I'm doing that in inverted commas. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be based on fossil fuels and it, has, it doesn't have to be based on corrupt working conditions and it doesn't have to be based on everything that leads to all of the poor health outcomes. It can be done in a way that, you know, so it can be development that's based on principles of environmental sustainability and social equity and health. So that can be happening at the same time, which allows the um, emergence of Sort of consumerism, um, but um, but sustainable uh, consumerism uh, within low and middle income countries, but high income countries and institutions absolutely have to contract. There's just otherwise we are you know, stuffed. So I'm thinking as you're talking about the Pacific Island states in particular and the devastating impacts of climate change there, um, and the fact that there are nation states, societies and cultures in the Pacific that that are under threat of no longer being (laughs) because of rising sea levels and all of the loss that comes with that. And the kind of discourse that leaders of some of those countries have tried to kind of bring to the global agenda in terms of reshaping our thinking so that we are thinking not just about consumption but about the maintenance of you know those vulnerable fragile states that are under such threat in the pacific but also thinking much differently and starting to think about maintaining societies and about well-being 
where do you think leadership is likely to come from globally to sort of shift the global discourse? Because what strikes me is when we hear leaders from the Pacific, and not necessarily only the political leaders from the Pacific, but, you know, Pacifica peoples talking about the need to shift the the paradigm in order for their societies and their cultures and their way of life to be preserved, it is incredibly powerful and it is incredibly moving. And I, I'm convinced. And I think many people who hear that are convinced. And yet the global discourse is so difficult to shift. So where do you see leadership coming from in terms of shifting some of those global paradigms? Yeah, well, so I suppose, so we have a moment, I think you were reflecting on this earlier. We have a moment because of COVID-19 where health is up there with the economy. Never before has health been in the same conversation as the economy. And health in a now, you know, being spoken about in much more of a well-being uh, sense. So it's right up there. So where's the leadership? So I think there's a diversity uh, of uh, leadership that is needed. I, don't, I certainly don't think there's any one place. I do think we're seeing much greater uh, voice of social movements. So Black Lives Matter, I think we're going to see much more of Extinction Rebellion uh, to do with uh, climate change. We've got the youth climate movement in the US. Certainly there's a whole um, a poverty campaign that's really taking off across the country and that will have social contagion from that as Europe slides into uh, recession. So I think those social movements will start to coalesce. So you have a push up uh, from the social movement. So not only in terms of providing support among uh, societies and, and peoples, but you have a push up from those social movements. And of course, historically, we've seen that it's been the social movements and the political struggles that are pushed through the social movements that has created political commitment. And I just think, you know, I am an eternal um, optimist. I, I just can't imagine how not to be at this point because otherwise it's just pure despair. But um, you, if we've got health and the economy up there sitting together here in Australia, we're about to go through another summer from hell. So climate change. And of course, the Australian government is being shamed by uh other uh, states uh, around the world in terms of uh, climate change and mitigation policy. So there'll be, there'll be momentum happens there. And so we'll start to see more uh, states uh, coalesce around action on climate change, push pushing up from the youth movement. Um, we had a little bit of mention of trade and investment. So the whole trade and investment regime is undergoing a reform and thinking about trade and investment through the Sustainable Development Goals framework, which is incredible. Now, of course, there'll be all sorts of pushback from that. Uh, but in the trading system, every country has a voice. And so actually many of the Pacific Island countries have been quite vocal uh, in the trade system because they've got a voice you know, in, in equal to others. 
So I think it's we're going to see leadership play out in lots of different rooms, I think, at different levels. And I think that's marvellous. I don't think we should be looking just one one place. You're, people are super excited that the World Economic Forum is talking about the Great Reset. Oh, good grief. How fantastic. Um, but of course, they won't do anything because they're all um, the political elites. And that's fine to say that and keep themselves as they fly off to Mars. But um, but but still, that's uh, that's an important performance and signal. And, you know, so uh, lots of different places will uh, demonstrate fabulous leadership. And if we look nowhere else, we look to New Zealand and we see compassionate leadership in spades. Uh, so just having the dignity and the human decency uh, to understand that as a political leader, you're there to look after uh, the people who have voted you in. Um, so I think we'll start to see more of that um, globally. Mm. That was the optimistic moment of uh, for 2020 when we saw the New Zealand election and we saw the ACT election and we saw movements to, to perhaps in communities where there's less fear of change. There's an enthusiasm for things to be different and for, for the future to be better than the past. Um, there's been a bit of stuff written that the sorts of radical transformations that might be required, the the rejigging of our economic priorities towards well-being or towards health and environment, uh, that the, this sort of radical transformation may often involve conflict. Are you optimistic that this can be achieved without conflict? Gosh, um... it tests my optimism. <laughs> You know, like, I, I think we're going to see more unruliness on the streets. Um, I think we'll see more and more of those uh, large uh, grouping uh, demands. Uh, I think, again, the lessons from the past where there have been incredible uh, success yeah, incredible success stories, you know, nuclear uh, disarmament, uh, the women's movement. Uh, you know, there, there were just all sorts of forms of resistance mm. that took place. Some of that, of course, was incredibly peaceful and sometimes there, there was um, unrest. I don't know how this all uh, plays out, but as I say, I just think it needs to be the, the coalitions of unusual bedfellows that if we're concerned about well-being, health, equity uh, and the environment, then we coalesce together uh, to demand change. I think on that, that note of what could be achieved and the way in which coalitions can come together to, to achieve it is... A good point on which to take a short break, let people reflect for just a moment, and we will return in just a minute to continue this conversation. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. 
Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We're continuing the conversation with Professor Sharon Friel. And Sharon, a couple of weeks ago, we spoke with Guy Standing from uh, University College London. And one of the things that I asked him about, because I am very exercised by this at the moment, is the very punitive policies that we see in many countries, particularly the UK through universal credit um, and in Australia through robo-debt towards people in need of welfare benefits. And over recent weeks, we've seen the robo-debt fiasco in Australia being deemed um, as, as, as inappropriate. We saw an out-of-court settlement. And we've heard over and over again about the devastating impacts on people of the robo-debt um, situation. <laughs> um, and we know that that had such a terrible impact on people's lives and well-being. Um, there are very credible reports of suicides that were genuinely deaths of despair coming out of um, that, what I think we can only call a fiasco. But we haven't seen any minister being held to account as yet. We haven't seen anyone taking responsibility. And so I guess the, the question that I have for you is, how do we come out of something like that experience and use it as a moment in time when we can start to think differently about people's welfare and well-being and how the state, but also as a society, we respond to people who need support. And as a second part of that big question, how do we think about leadership and responsibility for policies that have such a devastating impact on people's health and well-being? Um, I, I, I think the whole robo-debt fiasco has really illustrated the lack of of social contract that we have within Australian society. Um, I always marvel when we talk about you know, the country, you know, it's the, the fair go and we don't have a class structure here and, and of course we absolutely do. And I think fundamentally what is underpinning all of that is the way that we're seeing currently uh, with our political leaders is not actually considering people as people, but rather being very much within that paradigm of people as makers of the economy. And so it's, again, the value set of our political leaders that just completely obscures the fact that we're talking about humans uh, and humans' lives. So I would love to see uh, an introduction of a social contract uh, within Australia and that relates to some of the things that we were just speaking about previously of you know the, the coalitions, the social uh, connections uh, between communities within communities and being part of a democratic system uh, of uh, discussion, reimagining uh, of our society together. 
And also, I mean, robo debt. I mean, it just makes you sick to your stomach, really, when you think what that has done to to people. But of course, it also reminds us that we have to think about artificial intelligence and these forms of technology. And ask for what purpose and based on what sort of regulatory framework and what principles uh, are built into uh, these forms of, or these, I don't even know the right word, but into artificial intelligence. It also reminds me of, you know, there, there was such great promise of the intervention uh, by the Australian government, the federal government uh, around uh, job seeker, uh, you know, and income support. And there we saw, because of COVID, uh, we saw an additional $550 every fortnight. That's been pulled back to $250 and come January that'll be $150 and there's been some lovely analysis by colleagues here at the ANU who've estimated that that's actually going to send uh, 330,000 people into poverty. Good God. So we've got to ask the question and, and but of course the intervention, that promising intervention uh, around you know the $550, that wasn't I don't think based on a care for those people. That was how do we get people to spend money? You know, talking about consumption. So we're going to try and come out of COVID through a consumption led recovery, which is just incredibly problematic. And still no reflection, political reflection on what is the purpose of these policies? And I would love our, our Prime Minister to just stop and ask, does he think it's okay to send people back into the financial situation that we will see people die? Is that okay? Because that's what we'll see when people shift back into those levels of poverty and all of the multidimensional aspects of poverty of the, the work that you do, Sharon. Is, do we think that that is okay? Prime Minister, uh, and surely a reflection in the mirror has to say, no, that's not okay. Absolutely, and I, you know this is this is the reason we're talking about economics. And I'm just reflecting back over some of the conversations we've had so far. John Quiggan at the beginning of this series set up our ideas around um, economic activity that we've we uh, historically in the 20th century were making stuff, physical things, and that there's been this transition towards an information or service-led economy. And then the way that Tim Hollow framed this really still resonates with me quite deeply, that it's about extraction. And we've either been extracting stuff from the world around us and trying to really monetize the physical environment that we're in, or we've really commoditized the human existence. And that's part of what we're reflecting here, that the, the, the value of the human life in the society that we face. And so this is why economics is such an interesting set of discussions about how we can improve health and well-being. Because when we do give people an extra $500 a fortnight, I see in the work that I do as a medical practitioner that has real and material impacts on their health and well-being in a positive light. And so if that's what drives us as a community, how can we reset that policy agenda? Well, and I, I, again, it comes back to you know, what we were speaking about before in terms of the those coalitions and real and and the coalition of unusual bedfellows um and implicit in all of that is diversity and you know, i think it's incredibly disappointing that the the governance the the national cabinet the national committees that we've seen in in covid 
it's just so lacking in diversity. Um, there's been a little bit of attention paid to it, but it's just so lacking. So we've got the usual old white men still, still at the table making the decisions. And what again, what we know from history and what we know from elsewhere is when there are diverse voices around the table, then you get much greater uh, reflection and different, of course, different viewpoints. But that means you have to be kind of courageous uh, mm. and, you know, let go of your power and be happy with uh, that diverse, diversity of perspectives and wouldn't that be uh, a lovely uh, political uh, leadership to demonstrate um, I think you just you, you mentioned uh, Tim's work, Tim Hollow uh, and colleagues who have sort of written about the extraction and extractive capitalism and of course the sort of the counter to that and which I think what we're speaking about is regeneration or regenerative capitalism. I don't think capitalism's ever going to be going away, certainly not in my lifetime. Um, but wouldn't it be nice to recalibrate that to, to be regenerative? And so, yes, you can still have economic prosperity, but you can also have it in ways that's good for health, good for society and good for the environment. And I, I do just think it's the, it's the political struggle it's the social resistance. It's the using of the inside and the outside game. I mean, I think of colleagues within the government, within the bureaucracy, and there are fantastic colleagues at the federal, state, local levels who care about exactly these sorts of things. And they have power. You know, not all of the time, and sometimes it's not explicit, but they do have power. And the building of the relations uh, that they are so... Uh, able to do uh, just so exquisitely that seeing a little window uh, open, you know, we will see a little window open uh, when it comes to climate change policy, I think, as mm. this government is uh, shamed mm. uh, by others around the world. So there will be a little window that opens and voices will be able to come in through that window. And at the same time, we have others who are pushing to open the windows Um and I think what's so important is then being able to articulate very clearly what the pathways forward are. Yeah, it's all very well. It's so easy to sit and criticise, you know, well, as a researcher, that's, you know, probably about 70% of my job is to be critiquing uh, policy. But it's so, you know, and then colleagues say, well, OK, well, what do you want it to look like? Mm. Uh, and so collectively having uh, some suggestions as to those pathways forward towards that utopia that mm. we, we yeah, started no, Is it time about. to be imagining a utopia? I mean, I think it's, a, it's an interesting question. Yeah. You know, like there, there's going to be, you know, people will roll their eyes as they're listening to this podcast <laughs> and think, oh, for God's sake, you know, um, that's just all motherhood and apple pie. And that's absolutely true. It is. But unless we have some sort of vision of an alternative, then we will simply return to business as usual. Um, I think there will probably be a pragmatic approach towards that utopia. Um, and maybe that's OK. Sharon, I think be before we end this conversation, we will come back to what utopia might look like and, and maybe how we get there. But... I wanted to pick up on the comment that you made about the importance of diversity um, and 
clearly that's important in terms of um, decision making. And, you know, as you pointed out, we haven't necessarily seen that diversity in decision making in Australia. The other place I think where diversity really matters is in terms of the public discourse and the public debates. Um, and it always seems to me that, you know, one of the real problems, and I think this isn't only apparent to me, but the rest of the world, that one of the real problems with social media is that people do end up in genuine echo chambers where you're reinforcing your own ideas and you're shutting out any other idea that you don't like. I know I do this myself. I am always find that everyone's in agreement on Twitter until I kind of step out of my chamber and I'm quite shocked to hear how, how differently many people think. And so I think that's a problem in terms of us having conversations with one another rather than in parallel. But of course, the other problem and the, the equally big problem is the nature of the what we might call the traditional or the mainstream media um, and the dominance of um, a small elite, or, of, of most of that media, um, and the fact that that, that is um, a profit-driven industry, that it sits very much often within a, a kind of a neoliberal paradigm. And so we have these dual problems of the mainstream media not taking up the challenge for the most part about how we have a diversity of views and discussions in a respectful way that broadens out the conversation. And we have the problems of the echo chambers in social media. So how do we start to move forward in a way that brings diversity and respect for diversity into those kinds of public conversations? Is it the mainstream media that we we kind of hang our hopes on um, and try to reform that? Do we do the same in social media. And again, I think it's not an either, either or, but how do we start to build those diverse and respectful public discussions? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. It's not an either or, is it? Because, of course, those different types of media are used by different demographics and audience. So, um, I, I, so I was just reflecting on, just as you were speaking, I was reflecting on mainstream media and growing up in Britain, you know, in the, uh, the 70s, early 80s and the mainstream media was exactly the same then as it is now and I I was just wondering is it been able to you know across whatever sort of um, politics or perspectives uh, recognising the power of these different forms regardless of I mean I would be you know horrified by particular aspects of mainstream media um, but it has an incredible cut through. So if I can just tell a, a little story of um, when we were doing the work of the WHO's Commission on the Social Determinants of Health and we were writing the report at the end and it was, you know, this big thing of um, uh, you know, it was sort of 220 pages of, of middle class uh, focused analysis. And the best advice I was ever given was to go and spend uh, with with the team, the writing team, to take the writing team uh, and spend time at the Sun uh, with some of the editors from the Sun. And we did that, uh, and it was excellent for two reasons. One, it helped us cut it because they're just exquisite writers. Uh, I might not necessarily like what's in it, but they're exquisite writers. And two, it was just a beautiful mirror to say, who on earth do you think you are that you can come in and have this middle class imperialism? And, you know, of course, I thought that 
was just horrific at the time, uh, but it was so true. So that was a bit of a, a ramble in that, yes, the mainstream media is completely uh, captured by a neoliberal model and it's completely controlled by uh, a tiny number of very right-wing uh, groups and increasingly so. But it has such an audience. And I think the some of the lessons, uh, therefore, is how to frame, so Anna Greta, you know, the narrative, um, really understanding narrative and how you can be just, you have to just be happy with the fact that your story in some mainstream um, piece sits alongside another story that is just, you know, sort of diametrically opposed to what you're trying to say, but that's okay because it's out there. In terms of this social media, so one of the things that really worries me is we have no real regulatory framework. And I do think there are some regulatory levers that might help uh, both control some of the terrible hate discussions that go on in there. Um, I'm not entirely sure how it would help break those echo chambers because you're, of course, dead right uh, with that. But maybe there's a role for the bots uh, in being able to jump across the the boundaries that we you know that we create because of our um, sort of world view and you know, at that personal level but using bots I know certainly colleagues within the European Commission used to do that um, way back in the early days of social media they were using those types of techniques to cut jump across the political divide to get into the the headspace or the ear of um, some others so I think we need a conversation with colleagues within tech who really understand how you use uh, those those tools. But other than that, I'm rambling. Mm, no, so it's narrative and utopia and how we communicate that. And I, I think that's mm. part of the, 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 the some of the tools that we can use to to make uh, the process of change easier um, because it's easier to to find a new future when you can imagine what it might look like. And I think, you know, you can see that in the Royal Commission into Natural Disasters work that's been done on on the effects of climate change in Australia they're spending some time imagining what the future might look like uh, and working some narratives around that will be really helpful in preparing us for what could be a difficult transition ahead. Um, so fantastically interesting ideas here. I think it's also really exciting to think about the way in which we can have that conversation with people who work in technology and the way we can use technology in those ways. And I'm thinking as we're talking of the social dilemma, you know, that Netflix special that got such attention, but where we heard about people who have expertise in social media talking about the ways in which it is often used in such negative ways, but the ways in which it could be used for such positive purposes to, to kind of foster these kinds of more constructive discussions. So I think there is actually real optimism there. It's just shifting the paradigm towards something that looks a little more like utopia than dystopia. <laughs> and I, I suppose maybe in, in, in just in this discussion of that sort of that future helping to get towards that, do think you know we have to who, whose future mm. you know who decides what that is mm. um you know I, i've got a particular perspective we've all got particular perspective but there there is a diversity of views right? and it just remind me of some mm. of the discussions we were having um the climate change and health alliance in in australia did this lovely work of that sort mm. of imagining the future 
and somebody in those discussions says but there you know there's lots of different uh, mm. futures for among different groups and surely they're all equally valid aren't they um for me it comes back to if it is doing harm to people in the planet then no it's mm. not acceptable uh, and we can get there in different ways you know that's where i say I'm, i don't necessarily have an issue with profit some people of course would like us to not have a a profit model um but we can get there in different ways but i think it's the how do we get agreement on that end what's the end that we're working t- towards are they so a follow on question for that actually just around health and economics how much do you think it matters that we reframe the economic uh, approach from a health perspective oh i think it matters a lot mm-hmm. um so i'm certainly not naive to think that the dominance of of the um of mainstream economics is going to go away anytime mm-hmm. soon i just don't think it will it's been around for a long long time it's going to continue um but i suspect we underestimate the harm that our economic model might have on our health and well-being in a community well uh, and there's so much evidence uh, yes. ar- around uh, the the harm that it is doing um so it's not for lack of evidence mm. around uh, this economic model well I, i'm going to just backtrack a little bit because um our the economic model has worked uh, in a sense of you know it's lifted lots of people out of um, financial poverty but it's done that in a way that hasn't paid attention to these other more social or environmental um, and and health um, matters so if you're only concerned about financial poverty and Shannon point do you cuz you've this is what your multidimensional um, poverty index is all about and has illustrated so beautifully is if you only fixate on the financial aspect of the economic model then it obscures and lets off the hook all of the sorts of harms i think that you're um, speaking about and agreta so thinking about that economic model in a way of for what purpose um and it's it shapes the nature of our labor market it shapes the nature of our housing market it shapes the nature of our education it shapes the nature of our healthcare uh, system all of which all of which matter for health and well-being and the fact the 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 economic um model shapes each of these things and it shapes it um differentially or inequitably so of course leads to the inequalities in health and social uh, outcomes as well as all of the environmental harms so we cannot separate the uh, economy from health which goes back to i think our our remarks at the start of the the podcast of right now we have a moment because health is right up there in the public and political discourse with the economy in a way that we have never had well certainly not in my lifetime we've never had that before and people are recognizing that it's not an either or that they're so completely uh, interconnected uh, so let's not waste this moment mm. So Sharon we could I suspect speak for for many hours but we will need to wrap this up uh, shortly I'm going to come back to a a really interesting question and I wonder if you could paint for us what you think utopia might look like. Well, um so welcome to 2050. Uh we've all got really good health, we've all got access to really good quality and affordable healthcare. 
we all live in ways that respect uh, and uh, collaborate with our uh, our neighbours and our colleagues. Uh, we have a, a government uh, system that uh, sets in place policies uh, based on a an economic model uh, that front and centre cons- is concerned about the well-being uh, of the, the citizens. Uh, we live uh, in in 2050. Uh, we have absolutely nailed the problems of. Uh, climate change. We've had incredible climate adaptation and mitigation policies. And in getting to that uh, place, what we've done is uh, we've introduced a social vaccine. And our social vaccine is based on principles of fairness, of diversity, of inclusion, uh, of health, of environment, uh, environmental outcomes. And it's meant that we've set up uh, working conditions that actually allowed people to lead a life with dignity and hope. It means that we've set up an educational system that doesn't create two tiers uh, within society. It means that we've set up... um, a labour market, going back to our uh, working conditions, but a labour market that's based on green jobs. Uh, and we've uh, actually, in Australia, we've become one of the leaders in terms of alternative uh, energy sources uh, and business uh, practices. And we have a governance system that means sitting at the highest level of government are by law, uh, our voices from civil society. It's chaired not by the Prime Minister, um, but by one of our Indigenous elders. Uh, And it has to have, uh, every government department has to um, address its key performance indicators that are based on social, health, environmental and economic goals. That's how we got to 2050. That is a beautiful vision of utopia, and it doesn't feel like it's that far out of reach. It's just a little bit of work for us to get there. So, Sharon Friel, thank you so much for joining us today on our exploration of wellbeing economics. Your uh, ideas and vision, as always, uh, are extraordinary food for thought. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Sharon. Lovely. Thanks talking with you. Let's hope we get to 2050. So, Anna Greta, what did you think about some of those key issues that Sharon talked about and also that vision of utopia that she left us with. I love speaking with Sharon Friel. I love listening to her speak. I uh, love the Scottish accent, but I also really uh, very much always find uh, that I have new ways of thinking about health and well-being and thinking about how uh, we can we can see policy change in a really uh, pragmatic way to make the world into a better place. I uh, took away quite a lot of ideas. What were your take-home messages from today? Well, like you, I always love listening to Sharon's beautiful, gentle Scottish accent. But um, in terms of the key messages, I guess from Sharon's comments, but also across this series, the things that keep reoccurring to me are the need for us to think very differently about the way we care for and include those people within society who don't contribute in what we may often think of as a productive way. So the elderly, the young, people with disabilities, you know, they're the people where we we see the Royal Commissions happening, where we see profit driven services, destroying people's lives. And so I think, you know, to to get to that utopia in 2050 that Sharon talks about, how do we think really differently about what contribution to society is 
and how we care for people based on different definitions of contribution. And the other part of that is how do we start to reframe our society and our economic system? Mm. So the people who are kind of in that what is now classified as the productive age are not so overburdened with the need to work incredibly long hours or to search for paid work so that we can actually start to contribute and think differently about and live differently within a well-being and caring society. So, you know, from Sharon's conversation, I took lots of really important inspirational messages about how we just need to think differently and start to act differently. But it's practically useful. So I felt like the ideas that she gives us, we could start tomorrow. So the transition to a regenerative capitalism, I think that, you know, that, that the idea that people can continue to, uh, to generate wealth will make a lot of listeners comfortable and happy with that idea. But imagine if we reframed, and I think this is where our com- our whole conversation started from, is imagine if we framed our government policy, our social policy, our, our raison d'etre behind our economic activity through the prism of four metrics, through our societal impact through and caring for society, through health and well-being, through the environmental impacts and the caring for the natural environment and through the economics. And if you just simply adopt a model where all four of those metrics have a similar degree Degree of, of waiting, uh, it would be it would be getting close to Sharon's idea of utopia. So, listeners, you've heard today a vision of utopia that sounds rather appealing, and we're hearing lots of ideas about how we get there. So please do reach out to us and give us your thoughts. Tell us what your thinking is on some of these issues. You can find us on Twitter at apps a policy forum. Or you can reach us via email on podcast at policyforum.net. Probably the best way is to join our Facebook group. Just type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar and you'll find us there. And don't forget to leave a review. We love hearing all sorts of reviews. We love it when you reach for that fifth star. And you can subscribe and listen regularly to our podcasts through Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favourite pods. Anna Greta and I will be back next week with another episode in this Wellbeing Economy series and how we might reach that utopia that we've been talking about today. So come and join us again next week. Absolutely, Sharon. And I think we'll be exploring a little bit further how to make this happen in practice. I'm really looking forward to the next on this series. Thank you again for today. I think it's time for those practical steps and thank you. I'm loving these conversations. We will see you next week, but for now, it's bye-bye from me. Goodbye from me too. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. 
you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.